I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Hokkaido 150. On this episode, I'm talking with Michael Rollinghoff, PhD candidate in the Department of History at the University of Toronto, studying Anglo-American settler colonial models in Hokkaido. Michael, thank you so much for talking with me today. My pleasure. I understand your work is looking at some of the international influences in the Japanese settler colonialism of Hokkaido. Mm -hmm. So could you put that into the global perspective for us a little bit? Yeah, certainly. So basically, my work looks at both the discursive and legislative underpinnings of Hokkaido as a settler colony. And in as far as that goes, much of this is transnational in that we see both concrete policies that are adapted from either the United States, British Empire, or the Russian Empire, but also discourses of indigeneity which are central both to settler colonialism writ large, but also international law, which was being adopted by Japan in order to, I guess, have its own sovereignty recognized by the what were then the imperialist powers in East Asia. So to give a couple of concrete examples, in the early 1870s, there was a group of mostly American advisors that were brought in from the United States. And the express purpose of this, according to the head of the Kaitakushi, the Japanese colonial office, Kuroda Kiyotaka, was to remake Hokkaido to resemble New England. And the head of this kind of contingent of American advisors was a man named Horace Capron. Horace Capron, before going to Hokkaido, he was the American secretary of the Department of Agriculture. And as the secretary, uh, one of his roles was to oversee the Homestead Act, which was basically a process of transferring indigenous land in the American West to settlers. Um, This was kind of post-Civil War, so part of the the purpose of this was to basically move away from the chattel slavery that characterized American agriculture, at least in the South, before the Civil War, to having individual settlers work the land. Capron, before this, was a special agent of the American Bureau of Indian Affairs in Texas at the time when it was newly annexed by the United States, and his role there was basically the same, to transfer the land of indigenous people to white American Anglophone settlers. So Capron and a number of other American experts, mostly from the Northeast, traveled to Hokkaido in the early 1870s. And part of my work is looking at both what kind of policy and what kind of discourse was spread to Japan around this time and and how that affected the Aino in the next couple of decades. In terms of the American influences, they're kind of concrete and more discursive or ideological influences. But one of the main ones which you see from the time of Commodore Perry, who kind of famously opened Japan, in quotation marks, was the idea of Ainu as being equivalent to the so-called Indians of the American frontier. And this is important partly because in American law and in international law at the time, Indians were non-sovereign. So basically, by labeling the Ainu as Indians, they lost recognition of sovereignty over the land. And the Meiji state basically confirmed this, and in 1872, passed the Hokkaido Estates Regulation, which basically rendered all Ainu land property of the Japanese state. So that's probably the most major single American influence. In the United States, California was declared terra nullius after the United States annexed it. In Canada, British Columbia and lands that are currently Inuit lands in Nunavut were declared terra nullius, and most famously Australia. So this is sort of a Anglo-American policy, which was adopted wholesale into Japan. And the 
effect of this was that both the land itself, but also the flora and fauna on the land became commodified. It became property of the state, and then the Japanese government could dole it out to settlers however they wished. And in some cases, they gave, again, quotation marks, the land back to the Ainu with hopes that they would work it as farmers. But one of the major effects of this was that there were bans on unlicensed hunting and fishing, bans on unlicensed cutting of trees on Ainu land, and they were basically cut off from natural resources that they depended on. But also this was how their economy functioned, was trading fish for rice and things like that during the Tokugawa period. So their economy was devastated. Ainu communities experienced famines after the state's regulation was passed. The 20th century Ainu activist Yuki Shoji described the state's regulation as a concrete Ainu extinction strategy. And I think we have to consider in light of American frontier policy, same in Canada, of for example, the killing of the buffalo, or in Canada, there was a similar policy that was enacted that cut Indigenous people off from resources. And Horace Capron would have known this since he was the Secretary of the Department of Agriculture overseeing the Homestead Act. So part of my research is looking at specific attitudes towards indigeneity by these American advisors and how that influenced their policymaking. And you mentioned that there is many of these American advisors who are coming from mainly New England, coming in to implement these agricultural policies. And of course, one of the most famous in Hokkaido today is William Smith Clark. Yes. Uh, is this famous line about boys be ambitious. And mm -hmm. he, he's brought over in the mid 1870s to set up Sapporo Agricultural College. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the Morrill Act. And this is where many of the U.S. land grant agricultural colleges came from as well. So is this mm -hmm. another example of those connections? Yeah, certainly. So the Sporal Agricultural College, he was basically the first, I don't know what his exact title was, but kind of a headmaster, and was involved with curriculum design and training of people that would later go on to be Japanese colonial administrators. And as you mentioned, there was both in Massachusetts and in Hokkaido, there was sort of the militarized aspect to it too, where they would have underwent military training while learning agricultural science and learning the colonial history. And Clark really is this kind of larger than life figure in, in Hokkaido. I, I went up there and, you know, you see this boys be ambitious everywhere. And it's something that, you know, you hear all the time when you're in Hokkaido. Yeah, I used to teach English in Kyushu, which was on the other side of the country. And I would have kids come up to me that would have read them in, in textbooks, I guess. And they would say to me, boys be ambitious. So he's <laughs> ubiquitous in Japan. All the way across Japan. <laughs> yeah. yeah, his, like I said before, his influence in, in establishing the institution of Sapporo Agricultural College, which became Hokkaido Imperial University, and now Hokkaido University is it's immense. And he was the one that trained many of the men that went on not just to be colonial officials in Hokkaido, but in Taiwan and Korea as well. And I remember, you know, when I was up in Sapporo and, and some mm -hmm. friends there were, took me up to, I think there's this park where you can go see his statue and, and see the, it overlooks yeah. the sheep pasture. I, I mean, there mm -hmm. is this kind of questionable aspect of his popularity, right? Because isn't he pretty much a, a symbol of the Japanese settler colonization of the island? Yeah, I think that's that's a very important point because Japan is, it's not unlike Canada, I guess, in a way where I think that there's a hesitancy against some people to talk about settler colonialism historically. But at the same time, there's this great celebration of it with people like Clark or Capron, Horace Capron is also there's statues of him on the streets of Sapporo. And it's part of the mythology of Japanese Hokkaido. Um, and part of what I've been interested in is the role of Americans in that, and especially the role of Americans who didn't particularly see themselves as doing their work for Japan, but for the United States in some cases. 
education is, is kind of one aspect of the Kaitakushi's larger plan. In you know the, the frontier settlement in the U.S. West, there's also aspects of infrastructure, railways, telegraphs. Is there that same kind of emphasis in Hokkaido? And is this another reason to bring over Americans? Well, that was the expressed interest of the Japanese government was that they would be involved in agricultural expansion and they would be involved in, uh, like you said, mining. Several members of this kind of contingent were involved in infrastructure building, for example, opening ports or building railways. But very curiously, in the records that are left behind by people like Capron and Clark, there's kind of a self-conscious view that they were not focused on Hokkaido, but were focused on Japan. So, for example, Capron in his memoirs refers to his mission, which is always with a capital M, which was to reform Japan, basically, in America's image. And it was by doing that, they would be able to colonize Hokkaido in an American style. And part of that, as I mentioned, was developing homesteading policies, which would have settlers work their own land, which would become private property, and be prepared to defend their land, and basically have a very direct relationship, in a loose sense, with the soil. And this, a lot of scholars would refer to it as possessive individualism or sovereign citizenship. But it, it was quintessential, especially with the Homestead Act in the United States, with the kind of norms of the American West. And we see in decades, in some cases, after Capron went back to the United States after only a couple of years, in the United, he wasn't only in Hokkaido ever briefly, but a couple of years in Tokyo, references by Japanese settlers kind of praising Capron for instilling this spirit. And the same with Clark. Itobe and Nazo talked about kind of the manly pioneer spirit that Clark instilled on his students. So I think this is central to the ideology of settler colonialism. Certainly in the United States, it would be quintessentially male, quintessentially white. And that was sort of transposed onto Hokkaido in the 1870s and 1880s. It's interesting that Capron would write about his mission with a capital M. It kind of brings mm -hmm. to mind the whole idea of manifest destiny as well. It certainly does, yeah. And you see that also with, I mentioned Commodore Perry before, but he writes about opening up Japan specifically as a market and Americanizing Japan specifically to develop it as a market. And I think probably Capron had sort of a hint of that too, where it would benefit the United States to have Japan become more American. So far, we've been talking about some of the American influences on Japanese mm -hmm. settler colonial policies, but you mentioned there's also other countries involved as well, right? So Russia and, and maybe some other examples. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Certainly. Yeah, I, I've been writing about the uh, competition of the Russian Empire and Japanese Empire over Southern Sahelin, or in Japanese terms, um, Karafuto. And I've also been looking quite a lot at the Tondenhe, which were kind of a literal army of settlers who would kind of train from six o'clock to three o'clock and then go to the fields. And there's quite concrete proof that the Tondenhe were increasingly modeled after the Russian Cossacks. But both were that the institutional structures of the Cossacks were, were kind of adapted, I guess, to, to the Tondenhe, but also the, the kind of idea of the communal villages and the, the rough pioneer spirit as, as being an effective means of colonization. This is just sort of a pet theory of mine, but even before the Meiji period, the Matsumai indigenous management policies with the Ainu and Tokugawa era Hokkaido resembled the Russian-American policies in Alaska. So part of my research has been to look at Japan and the United States or Japan and Russia as, as mirroring each other in this colonial policy during the late 19th century. You mentioned Nitobe Inazo earlier, and, and mm -hmm. speaking of these, this competition with Russia, I'm reminded of this famous quote he has about the Muscovite power rolling down the Siberian steppe like an avalanche. And this is what, of course, led to the colonization of the long-neglected island of Hokkaido. Uh, so he definitely did 
put it starkly in those terms of, you know, Hokkaido is this land that we're both competing over. And so mm-hmm. Japan has to be the one to develop it first so that it can prevent Russian incursion. Yeah. But even then you see, for example, Russian carpenters were brought in to build these houses for Japanese soldiers who were there ostensibly as, as kind of an anti-Russian garrison. Or like I said, the kind of leaders of the Tonlinhe army were went to investigate the Don Cossacks in the Russian Empire, and they were received quite warmly, actually. So not just the United States, there's sort of the level of imposition on Japan, which sometimes takes almost a kind of colonial nuance, but also with the Russian Empire, too. There's, there's a level of not just competitiveness, but cooperation in the colonization of the Ainu. So we were talking about American influences in the Japanese settler colonialism of Hokkaido. We're both in Canada right now. I'm at yes. UBC. You're in Toronto. And of course, in looking at the Canadian settler colonialism of First Nations peoples, one of the things that comes up is residential schools. Are there residential schools set up by the Japanese government in Hokkaido? So there, there was a school set up in the Kaitakushi headquarters, actually in Tokyo, where the Kaitakushi brought in a group of Ainu children as sort of a pilot project. And they would have been taught, because it was a model farm that the school was established at, so taught agriculture and, and undoubtedly tried to, they would try to assimilate them into Japanese culture and language. But it, it was a disaster. A number of these children died. As far as I know, they died of disease and several other survivors kind of begged to go home again. And eventually the, the project was abolished. But there was kind of private efforts on part of the British missionary, John Batchelor. He opened a private Ainu school, which, as you might imagine, was mostly religious education. He had a neutral or even kind of positive view of Ainu culture, so he taught in Ainu. So it was kind of against the goals of the Japanese government at the time. But with the establishment of the Hokkaido Former Aborigines Protection Act in 1889, it was based directly on the Dawes Act, but also resembles Canadian Indian Act. There was a, a Aborigine Protection Act in, I think, the British colony of Victoria in Australia. Um, but all of these policies at Indigenous protection, and in the Japanese case, it involved not just the redistributing stolen Ainu land back to the Ainu, but also education. They had segregated Ainu schools, but they weren't residential schools, but they were geared toward linguistic assimilation and teaching simple trades, more than the kind of residential school system, but the more liberal um, education of Indigenous peoples in the United States. So, for example, there were some of the historically Black colleges like the Hampstead Institute or the Howard University also had large numbers of Indigenous students. Interestingly, one of the, I think both of those institutes, one of their more famous students was Oyabe Zenichiro, who was from the Tohoku region in Japan, if I remember correctly. And he ended up getting his doctorate from Yale. And he brought a lot of the kind of indigenous education back to him in another private school in Abuta, which is southern Hokkaido. And Oyabe's kind of created a compound with a school and his own residence. And he, I think, directly saw it as kind of a reservation type model, which could be both kind of the collectivization of Ainu land, but also of Ainu education, which could be applied elsewhere. To answer your question, (laughs) there were, I think, attempts at creating maybe a more British style or Canadian style residential school system. But ultimately, there, there was kind of a segregated Ainu vocational schooling that was established in the late 19th century. And as you mentioned, it's a result of teaching the language. I understand the percentage of Ainu who spoke the Ainu language declined precipitously over the early 1900s. Well, yes, basically at at the beginning of the Meiji period, there were quite a low number of Ainu who spoke Japanese. And part of the reason was that a lot of business between the Matsumai domain, which was sort of the hegemon in in Ainu lands before uh, the Meiji restoration, and the Ainu was conducted in the Ainu language. 
a lot of the Japanese settlers before the Meiji period were kind of bicultural, you might say, where they were fairly well integrated into Ainu communities in some ways. And that changed. There were campaigns of linguistic assimilation quite early on, of course, but basically by the dawn of the 20th century, the number of native Ainu speakers dropped significantly. Hokkaido 150, hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia, located on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded lands of the Musqueam First Nation. For more videos and information about Hokkaido 150, visit meiji.150.arts.ubc.ca slash Hokkaido 150. All music, copyright, Chikar Studios, and used courtesy of Okidub Ainu Band. Thank you for listening.